0: disco dancer Well it happens a lot around here And if you think peace is a common goal that goes to show how little you know
1: Psychedelic rock there. That's the Smiths, and that's a track titled Death of a Disco Dancer, taken from the album Strange Ways Here We Come. I'm David Eastall. This is the C86 show. Welcome once again to another thrilling ride of life, as I'll be bringing you songs you know, some you don't, and some you should, always playing the finest in indie pop, as I'll be crossing time, space, and genre. This week's special guest all the way from Liverpool is going to be Dave Jackson from The Room, Benny Profane, and also his latest combo titled The Room in the Word. So I've got that interview that I'll bring to you, probably cut up into about three or four Easy to digest little segments throughout the show alongside the usual award-worthy playlist. But I'm going to start with your favourite and mine. This is taken from a track by the room and this is New Dreams for Old.
0: Things traced on call for Michael. Show, no reflection, burning cold in lover's sockets, yeah, no surprise or recognition. Hands thrust deep in.
1: Know what you're thinking that is pop perfection that is also the room featuring dave jackson plus lots of others the track titled new dreams for old taken from the album in evil hour stroke clear yes this week's special guest is going to be dave jackson because i spoke to him recently about well lots of things including his latest musical combo which is titled for those who want to know the room in the wood. So I've got that interview, which I'm going to play after the following track. But before that, we'll have a little bit of admin just to just to make sure you know who this is. It is David Eastall, The C86 Show. You can contact me via Facebook, Twitter. Just go to C at C86. And also all the show has been archived so you can get it on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, Podcast. Just do C86 Show. It's all there and much, much more. It's all very groovy and excitable. Um, as you can tell i'm slightly hyperventilating i'll need to calm down in a bit but before any more chat i think we'll play another track this is again taken by from the room and this is titled in sickness and in health our favorite subject There you go. That is The Room featuring the one and only Dave Jackson. And that was their second single that came out in 1981, titled In Sickness and in Health. This is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the first part of my interview with Dave Jackson, where we were having a chat about the Liverpool scene. And all that exciting stuff. Because um, I think last year or 18 months ago, Cherry Red Records released a compilation of material which featured, um, I think it was a five CD box set with enjoyable booklet and lots of other exciting notes as well to document that sort of post-punk indie scene of the Liverpool uh, world, which um, we all sort of went out and bought or, or tried to anyway. Um, and I was talking about his early part of his own life and where it all began. And this was Dave's answer. Dave, take it away.
2: First band I had was very briefly abandoned, kind of 78, uh, 051. And then after that, um, I had a band called The Room, which uh, ran from kind of late 79 to um, 85. Um, we put out, uh, there were kind of two two different versions of the band, uh, the, 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 first band kind of, uh, first version of that band, we did, um, about three John Peel sessions, uh, put out a cassette album as our first release, which John Peel played quite a lot. Right. A singles on our own label. Then we signed to a label called Red Flame, kind of, uh, did an album with them called Indoor Fireworks, toured the west coast of America, played with the Birthday Party in the Fall and uh, plays with the bands. And then the, the lineup of the band changed and the guitarist that I'm currently working with, Paul Cavana, joined uh, that version of The Room, changed around and we ended up signing to Virgin. Right. Um put out a mini LP called Clear and an album called An Evil Hour, which was produced partly by John Porter, who was doing The Smiths at the time, and Tom Verlaine at television. Uh, It was a big hero. And then that band split up in about 85. Uh, Paul and Alan went on to form a band called Top.
1: Right.
2: Eventually, Alan started Delta the Delta Sonic label. Yes. Liverpool. Um, At that point, I I started, me and Becky, who had been in every band I'd been in up to that point, Uh, started looking for new members. Joe McKechnie, who'd been playing with The Passage, joined us. Um, We did our first demo with Will Sargent on guitar Um, and then, uh, you know, helping us out to see what we'd sound like. Um, and then Robin Certis, who'd been in a band called Shiny Too Shiny, and before that a band called a Formal Side, joined on guitar. And with that band, we did um, I think we did three Peel sessions and our first kind of EP. Was called Where Is Pig, which came out on a label called Sub Pop, but it's not the, you know, it's <laughs> Sub Pop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I
3: think
2: it, it was the only release they put out in what, 80? That must have been 86, probably. Mm-hmm. Which is what I think a, a track off that is on the uh, Cherry Red, see, the 86 thing, a mm-hmm. uh, song called Hang Fire. And then we signed to Eddie Esther which is part of Red Rhino. We had like the close lobsters and people like that. Um, We put out the Devil Laughing uh, 12-inch single with um, three tracks on the other side. And John Peel really liked Stitch That, which was one of the songs on it. Mm. Played to death for a while. Um, And we did another two EPs with with Red Rhino Eddie Esther and was supposed to bring out an album but the company went bankrupt or filed bankruptcy and kind of delayed the release or letting us know that they were going to weren't going to release any more records uh, and kind of messed us about Uh, and then we signed to Play Hard which is Dave Haslam's label
1: the famous Dave Haslam.
2: Yeah. Um, I did. Um, so we, we put the album out with them and a single, "Skateboard Oblivion. Uh, and I was talking to Lynn Sangster, who used to be in a band called Kit, who were also on Play Hard the other night. Oh, okay. Uh, and she was saying that Play Hard went bankrupt which is probably the reason why we didn't release anything else with them. So the next album, uh, trapped or Swing, we recorded ourselves and put out through a label called Imaginary Records.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and then we did our last John Peel session and, and split up in the summer of... Uh, 1990,
1: I think. Wow, just at the height of when Grunge was about to appear. So, so because normally, because I haven't done this show for quite a bit of time, mostly people have You know they have the one band moment, which lasts about five years, and then they sort of, it all goes wrong. Often around the second album or definitely the third. And and if anybody ever does America, that always seems to finish them off when they return, and it all just goes totally pear shaped. But but you you know you managed in the eighties. You know I I interviewed Lawrence from Felt recently, and he seemed to put out an album a year during the eighties, which was one of his uh, I suppose projects really he had. So you almost were doing the same. I mean you didn't have a year off during the eighties
2: either. Oh god, no. No, we just went from one band to the next. And um, and after after Benny Profane split up we had a band called Dust with a guy called Ian Johnson who now runs well he ran a, a label called Must Destroy. He worked for Alan McGee for a while. We toured with the wedding present and we were supposed we've actually put out two cassette albums during that time because we didn't have the money to put uh, uh <laughs> to press vinyl and uh, kind of sold them at gigs. But I went back to university and did a degree and MA and a PhD during the 90s, but also formed a fourth band, probably, (laughs) called Dead Cowboys, and that band put out two um, albums in 2000 and 2005. Yes. So sort of after that, I did an album in 2010 with John Head out of um, Shaq, um, Mike, Mike Head's brother.
1: Yes.
2: And then another one in 2016, I think, uh, with Robin Surtees again under the name of Dave Jackson and the Cathedral Mountaineers. Mm. And just really, I just got back together with Paul Gavanna and The Room in the Wood I've just got a new album out on A Turntable Friend so there's kind of a lot of,
1: of stuff <laughs> and that's the first part of my interview with Dave Jackson and as he was saying there, he's been through a lot of musical combos and he's now got a new um, new one out indeed, and which he'll talk about a bit later called A Room in the Wood. But before we have any more chat, I think we'll play some more music. And this is taken from his next musical combo, which is titled Skateboard to Bolivian by Benny Profane. Take it away. <laughs> that's Benny Profane and the track titled Skateboard to a Bolivian that was produced by Ian Brody he of lightning the lightning seeds anyway this is david eastall this is the c86 show and this is going to be the second part of my interview with dave jackson from a lot of musical combos i hope you're making notes because i will test you at the end but this is when i was talking about the economic and social situation of well not just uh, the country but also well not just liverpool but the whole country at the time because obviously it was a lot of high unemployment and um, we always like to go on about that sort of period and those kind of issues. And this was Dave's answer. Dave, take it away.
2: No, period. I was whole the entire time. I was in a band apart from the brief period that um, when we were signed to Virgin 10, we, we paid ourselves something like £60 a week, it which is. was 14 back then. That's what <laughs> I advanced. Um,
1: and, did you, um, and were you on, because I know a lot of people were on the enterprise Alliance scheme during that period as well. No,
2: didn't. we just signed on and, you know, and, and eventually the reason why I ended up going back to university in about 93 was because I was on the dole, but also kind of working in the black economy, you know, dishwashing and stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> and bartending and realised that, you know, I needed to, to find a way of earning some money, you know.
3: Yes.
1: Well, I, know.
2: I mean, for me, I always wanted to carry on doing music, whether it it was, you know, professionally or not, you know, kind of thing.
1: Yeah. I mean, the other thing that often happens with band, people who've been in bands long enough or even not even that long is they get slightly hammered with the, the kind of intake of uh, drugs and drink. How did, you know, and I know to I have heard not just stories, but, you know, obviously people who've got quite damaged, especially in the sort of Liverpool-Manchester scene. How did you manage to avoid that kind of world that was kind of probably quite prevalent in the creative industries? Um,
2: the genes? I don't <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I never really... I mean, for me, you know, I did drink quite a lot, you know, when we played, I mean... I was you know, but, um, it was never a thing that you just did it for its own sake, if you know what I mean it was it was an aid to get over you know shyness if you were playing or something like that, so it wasn't you know the drink itself wasn't you know the the be all and end all and uh. I just say no to drugs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was obviously quite lucky, actually, wasn't it? Because I noticed that quite a few people are are sort of, they're with us, but sort of not completely with us, if you know what I mean. But um, so obviously you know, you had no problem with the creative process, because the other thing that happened, because coming from East Anglia, we don't really have a fantastic music scene, and the 80s wasn't particularly sort of bubbling with exciting bands. We had the Farmers Boys and the Hicksons yeah. and a few others, but nothing that really shone. So what what was it about Liverpool and, and Manchester that created just kind of so many bands?
2: Um That's true. To... I, I think Possibly, you know, unemployment might have helped um, <laughs> in an odd kind of way, you know, that uh, there was nothing else to do.
1: Right. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you must have grown up in that sort of with the cultural heritage of, of Liverpool with, with, you know, such a musical scene, obviously with the, the Beatles as well. So was it all part of what was kind of being filtered into your sort of um, consciousness as a young child and with your family?
2: Uh, yeah, I suppose it was, yeah. I mean, I remember my grandma taking me when I was very little to see Hard Day's Night, um, and my other grandma bought Beatles singles as they came out, kind of thing, which was, it was more, I almost got the impression it was almost like, well, they're from Liverpool, so, you know, you know, people listening to music that they wouldn't normally listen to, you know, kind of. uh yes.
1: Because
2: it was local, you know, as it were.
1: (laughs) And did you feel part of a scene at all? Because, you know, from an outsider's point of view, you'd think, wow, you know, do you all sort of... To a certain degree, I mean,
2: early on, uh, I think the Eric scene was quite, you know, I mean, I used to go there, we played there. But, um... I don't know. Not so much then. I suppose in the kind of... In the... Later '80s, you know, we kind of had we had a place that we used to play at, and bands like early the early version of the Lars and um, bands like the Walking Seeds and the Tractors and stuff like that, and we would we'd play together. Yeah, there was a, a pub that we used to play at called the Monroe on a uh, uh, place called Duke Street that was um, owned by this old. Well, I say old, probably no older than I am now. Chinese bloke uh, called Ernie Wu, and um, he had some kind of deal with the police, where I whereby he could keep the place open after the clubs closed, even. So we kind of uh, congregate there, and bands would play in the back back room of, of this kind of pub.
1: Yeah.
2: His excuse to keep the place open, if the police checked upon him, was that he'd make a big kind of uh, vat of Vegetarian scouse, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so he could say he was serving food. I don't know why he thought that would, you know, <laughs> excellent, excellent. Sorry, because obviously, we because he was staying up until six in the morning. With
1: I didn't well, realize there was such a big vegetarian movement in Liverpool, but obviously <laughs> it was quite good. Well, it was that time <laughs> yeah. we all had the Cranks Cookbook, didn't we? But obviously, yeah. the other thing that you know, having seen and read documentaries about that scene was that you had big in uh, you know, bands like Big in Japan that almost sounded like the equivalent of the Andy Warhol factory with all these kind of exciting and crazy characters yeah. from Holly Johnson to is it Jane Casey and people like that? Yeah, like
2: He he, he runs a club called District in Liverpool now where quite a lot of bands play and there's a kind of an Eric's uh, group that kind of put on nights there quite a bit.
1: Well, I remember sort of hearing an interview with Jane, is it Jane Casey? Just yeah, Jane a, yeah. Casey. And she was talking about when they were sort of doing their thing in the early years. And um, her quote was something like, we, we were wearing our neuroses on stage, you know, because they were all slightly um, interesting and slightly animated yeah. characters. So did that, did that also feel like a scene that you, were, you had been or were part of as well? I
2: suppose so. I mean, it, it, it was kind of weird because the very first band that I had, 5 1, it was me and Becky on bass. It was our sister Helen on sax and the mate from Belvedere which was a girl's school at the time, Philippa, on a, a kind of acoustic guitar put through a pickup and a wooden wah-wah pedal that her boyfriend had made of. And then we got a kind of, this guy, Paul Hornby on drums, who I think he did, he might have played with Pink Industry, one of James' bands at one point, and with Nightmares in Wax briefly. Right. Um, And this is the guy, Steve Cockrell, who wanted to be Jimmy Page on guitar, so we had this kind of very strange band uh, that was kind of unusual, because we had three women in the band who also refused were kind of feminists and refused to dress up. You know? <laughs> <laughs> the promoters would say, oh, if you get them in mini skirts, you know, you can't they like, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was never gonna happen. I mean, that was the other thing that was kind of during that time was the great sort of political uh, struggle and we had the the yeah. Red Wedge movement and yeah. Rock Against Racism and um and live aid, that was more sort of fluffy pop really. I mean did you sort of ever sort of feel sort of part of any of that kind of um political movement of the swp and you know, well there's
2: always kind of left left wing and uh uh i think we played with what was it big flame once we were all very serious kind of probably swp types
1: i think <laughs> uh. indeed we were all a little bit swp back in the day and probably a bit of tvp as well and barley cup if you were trying to get off caffeine and we're feeling pretty um angsty and guilt-ridden in that kind of green and fluffy way anyway that's the second part of my interview with dave jackson from many bands including the room benny profane and also his latest musical combo the titled the room in the wood and they've had various releases and um, eps out so i will play a track by them before the end of the show but before any more chat we're going to play another track by the room <laughs> That's titled "Bated Breath by The Room. Atmospheric stuff. Anyway, this is David Esau. This is the C86 show. And this is going to be the third part of my interview with Dave Jackson from the band and many others as well, where I'd been talking about the... Well, I'd had an interview with a member of Big Flame where he said that um, two of the members weren't particularly musical. Thus, that's why they created the noise they did. And um, I would have been. Asking Dave what his musical um, abilities were. And this was his answer. Dave, take it away.
2: Well, well, not really. I mean, I can't play anything. Um, so I, I just sing and hang around with musicians, really. Um, so, th- I mean, say for instance, at the moment with Paul, he'll kind of send me a guitar riff and uh, I'll figure out a melody line to go through it by singing it kind of thing and put the words to it. But I've never been able to play an instrument in my life or read music right um, was and do you so? embarrassing when, well when i did the album with john head he challenged me to you know to, he said tell you what um we'll we'll do an album together um you come up with the songs and i'll produce and play on it so i went down to rehearsal studio to meet him and uh <laughs> There with his guitar. he said where's your guitar I, said, I can't play but <laughs> so I had to sing the songs to him a cappella, and get him to pick up the chords and stuff like that so yeah
1: tricky one tricky and do you <laughs> and, and, do, and do you sort of uh, sort of um, do you feel a sort of amazed when you see bands like you two that sort of started in probably a very similar way but then sort of managed to sort of crawl or sort of jog out of that kind of sort of indie yeah. circuit and then sort of become these kind of absolutely megastars, knowing the, the complexities of what it is to be in a band. Yeah. However, well,
2: they kind of started off ripping off the Bunny man didn't they, really? Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I mean, I think they used to play in Liverpool quite a bit and I've heard stories about them sending the, you know, stylist to man gigs and <laughs> to check out what they're wearing and stuff.
1: <laughs> but I suppose the interesting thing, is, like, with Echo and the Man, when they first came, it was like, God, that is such an amazing sound. But then, yeah. and they, you know, they, they continue to have albums. But then, I mean, this, this might upset a few people, but I just remember when the Smiths came along, it kind of shifted a lot of things that sort of like, suddenly, the you know, the men didn't seem to be quite so... Mm -hmm. surfing the zeitgeist it's like suddenly they got slightly sidelined as the smiths had their five years of sort of glory in that side and you know and at the time i thought the smiths were going to be bigger than anybody and obviously they couldn't keep it together for obvious reasons looking Mm -hmm. back at it whereas you two managed to sort of sort of keep going and make the right decisions if you know being a huge successful global brand is what you want. i
2: think they always treated it as a business because i remember when we we played in Canada at this place, and this was probably, what, 81 it would have been, yeah. Uh, And we were talking to these Canadians who were, you know, their local scene or whatever, and they uh, decided they didn't like you, they'd gone off you too, because when they played, they noticed that um, Bono wore his watch with the dial on the inside, and that at certain points during his, you know, kind of messianic performance, he'd check. (laughs) He'd look at the inside of his wrist and check his watch. (laughs) And um, that that to a certain degree, they approached it as a business, you know, kind of thing. Yes. And even made a business out of pretending to be kind of, you know, um, Transcendent or whatever.
1: (laughs) Yeah, but I suppose the other thing is that when you're in a band, especially with people in their teens or in their twenties, trying to sort of keep that dynamic together, let alone all the admin and the management, is quite tricky. So, so how did you cope with those kind of issues and moments? Because obviously, with people like say the Stones, they managed to sort of keep bridging things where we can. I think
2: think one of our problems when I look back on it, we didn't really have a manager when we started off. Basically, with the room, we didn't get a manager until we signed to Virgin. And the guy that we got as our manager also managed Virgin Studios and a bunch of producers. He actually, at one point, he was offered the job of uh, managing Morrissey. And he said, as you know, separate thing, and he went around to meet him and said, he turned it down. He said he doesn't want a manager, he wants a wet nurse. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. Um I don't know. Uh I think we we just kind of did what we wanted and I I was always quite suspicious of managers and stuff like that, probably to our detriment, you know, because people would offer to managers and you, you just think, Well, why why do you want to manage us? What what are you gonna try and <laughs> do to rip us off? And, um
1: Yes, this is true actually.
2: But you actually look at bands that become successful and they usually do have really good management you know And um Yeah
1: I think there's probably there's probably 5% who've managed to get good management.
2: I mean I don't know who you two's manage, management are but I imagine they probably you know made sure that they got on the straight and narrow as it were.
1: Yes I, I think there I was.
2: suppose being Godfather is, wasn't going to Bono might not be going to Become a, a drug fiend, or whatever. You know?
1: Yes, this is true. And also, I mean, what would what would you say to your kind of eighteen year old self? You know, starting out in music. What sort of advice have you, in experience, have you picked up along the way that you think, God, I wish someone had just mentioned that to us when we were sort of in our late teens.
2: Um. I think not being as dismissive. I think that's the other thing, not being as dismissive of America as, as, um, I think back then there was that whole kind of, you know, I'm so bored with the USA lie that the clash kind of played out, you know, um, you know, because in actual fact, they were kind of almost made for American FM, weren't they? You know, college stations or whatever. Um, So when we toured America, we kind of got reviewed in the LA Times. We did all kinds of stuff. And just before we were due to fly back to go to um, play at the ICA Rock Week, which we thought was a massive big deal, um, we got offered to play with Wall of Voodoo in LA and stuff like that. And we could have actually stayed over and done a lot more stuff. But we kind of thought, England was where it was at, you know, because of that kind of myopic kind of music press approach that uh, a lot of independent bands had then, you know, that it was more important to get a good review in the NME than kind of sell a lot of (laughs) records. Gosh, yes The
1: good old NMA. Yeah, I mean, the other, the other thing that, that often, you know, is slightly boggling is kind of the ownership of music Did you manage throughout your sort of career to sort of keep a, a handle on the publishing and the sort of ownership of it?
2: Yeah, mostly I mean, when we signed to Virgin, we signed a publishing deal with part of the deal was that we signed our publishing and our, you know, record deal with them, but we got everything back eventually um so yeah i I mean such as it is we've got we've got our publishing yeah um
1: which is fantastic because i know quite a few bands who've just kind of gone no we don't own it and probably in their lifetime they're never going to be able to sort of have that kind of nice kind of box set release with all the material on and a few nice sleeve notes so i think a few people feel a bit sort of like not traumatised, but almost don't want to think about it because it's sort of too upsetting. So, oh, really?
2: so they don't even have the rights to their own music. Yeah, I think there's a couple of record
1: labels that aren't, you know, you. I won't say who they are, but we're a bit yeah. like, God. yes, you know, anybody who signed for one particular label seem to all be a bit traumatised by it because, you know, they just yeah. don't own anything. So you, you've done well keeping hold of all that. Yeah. And do cool. you sort of keep in touch with any of the members? You know, because obviously you've been in, you know, like with Becky, oh, you've been I'm
2: in bands and that. Pardon? Oh, members of bands and stuff. yeah. No, the
1: you know, um, uh, you know, the members that you were with, like Becky and people like that. I just. Wanted oh to...
2: God, yeah. I mean, Becky, Becky, and I've been in ba- carried on playing in bands for up until about two thousand and six. Uh, when she she moved up to Wolverston with her husband and uh, son, Ethan, and they started their own microbrewery um, called Stringers, um, so, yeah. uh, which has won all kinds of awards because Becky and her husband, John, who also used to be in, in the Walking Seeds at one point, um, are both chemists and they, they brew this incredible... Um, but yeah, yeah excellent,
1: um, well I must check it out what's it called again?
2: it's called Stringers
1: oh, ex- oh after her surname Yeah. oh excellent, that's really good because actually the other thing, because I remember sort of talking to, I think it's Dougal or Douglas from BMX Bandits and he's had millions of sort of ex-band members who have come and gone in various bands of his, but he's sort of said that he's kept in touch and friends with most of them though. oh
2: yeah, well I'm still friends with Robin who was in Benny Profane and we did the last, the last, last album I did, which was uh, called Red fin Sunset by Dave Jackson and the Cathedral Mountaineers. You can find it on Spotify, probably or wherever. We, Robin and Greg, Greg who'd been in a band with Robin years before, and he, Greg also used to be in a band called Barbel. I don't know if you've ever heard them, but anyway. So yeah, we did an album together, and we did, I think we did five. Redid five Benny Profane songs on it, Devil Laughing and um, uh, Pink Snow and Perfect Girl and a couple you know, couple of others. Um, so I was still in touch with Robin, uh, Roger who played with us yet, see Joe around town quite a bit.
1: And that's the third part of my interview with Dave Jackson. I've just got one little bit left, but I thought we'd play a track by his new musical combo that is titled, the band is called The Room in the Wood, and this is Dragonfly. Mm
0: Retail Win
1: Is um, Dave Jackson's latest musical adventure? um, They're titled The Room in the Word, and that is a track titled. Dragonfly, and I do believe that's all available on Turntable Friend, the music um, record label. Anyway, this is going to be the last and brief part of the interview where I was talking about how things sometimes turn out. And in life, it can often, not often, but sometimes be for the better. And Dave is now a lecturer at a university, which um, is obviously a long way from 1979. Anyway, Dave. Are you amazed?
2: Yes, definitely. It was the last thing I ever thought I'd do because I dropped out of art college in order to be in my first band. I was in the first year of a degree in Birmingham. And after that, I thought, whenever we played you know, you know, know, gigs at colleges and universities, I'd think, well, <laughs> I'm never going back there kind of thing. So it was quite hard to go back and then do the whole degree and MA, PhD and and then end up being a lecturer, you know.
1: <laughs> that must be fantastic, actually. And interesting
2: enough. Well, crazy so enough, at our place, John Hyatt of the Three Johns is uh, a professor.
1: <laughs> oh, wow.
2: <laughs>
1: oh, excellent. Well, it's interesting because there's a couple, because actually a member of Big Flame, Greg, he's he's a professor at, the, um, I think it's Belfast University. and um, Yeah. And so there's quite a few people who've kind of managed to sort of uh, get themselves into some lecturing position. Now, I think Pete Astor from um, The Weather Prophets, he's a lecturer in yeah. London now. I think it's music, which is obviously a, yeah. a, a wise choice. But it's great that so many people have sort of gone, gone into the academic world, but are still sort of playing music. And obviously you still love creating, you know, this, yeah. the perfect three minute pop song. Yeah. yeah. And, and do you do you play live much?
2: We played our very first gig with the new band the night before last um, in Liverpool. It went really well. It, uh, we ended up having Steve Powell on rhythm guitar. With uh, Steve plays with Michael Head and the Red Elastic Band and kind of co-produced most of their new album. Um, uh, yeah, we, we ended up with between seven and two people on stage through the, the whole set (laughs) Uh, and yeah we're going to do a lot more stuff um, because well the album's out on the 22nd of June and Ulrich have have you come across Ulrich? No he runs a label called A Turntable Friend they do vinyl they're based in Germany he flew over from Dusseldorf and brought uh, copies of the vinyl over with him it's it's a strange thing you know because it's You know, with playing with Paul again after when we first decided recorded the new album, I sent some stuff to James Nice, you know, LTM. Yes. Um, And because LTM had put out the Benny Profane stuff and the Old Room stuff and a Dead Cowboys album, and asked him if you know he, he was interested in putting out the Room in the Wood, and he said, "You've had too many names. Why don't you just go out as the Room?" And Paul certainly didn't want to do that. And I thought it might be a bit disrespectful, you know, to the members of the band who, you know, especially Becky had been in every version of that band to to pretend that we were called The Room, especially when we're only going to do new stuff. Um, So we settled on The Room in the Wood because Paul's solo act is called The Cabin in the Woods.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And that is going to be the last part of my interview with Dave Jackson, who is currently in a musical combo titled The Room in the Wood, who's got various EPs and I do believe an LP out as well. Um, But he's also been in a lot of other musical combos, including Dead Cowboys, The Room, Benny Profane. And I do think there's Dave Jackson and the, God, what's it called? And the Cathedral Mountaineers. There you go. Well, well spotted me. Anyway, thank you ever so much for listening. This has been David Eastall. This has been the C86 Show. You can contact me if you want on Facebook, Twitter. Just go to at C86 Show. I will be there. And also all the shows have been podcast. So you can get them on Spotify, iTunes, Mixcloud, and Podbeam. It's all there. Enjoy. Anyway, I'll leave you with another track. This... Is going to be again taken from the room, and this is titled Things I've Learned to Walk That Ought to Crawl. Have a great week.